welcome, welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by the HockeyThinkTank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. We bring on Reed Lowe, former professional player, played parts of five seasons for them, full-time for the St. Louis Blues. Reed grew up in the great city of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, where he also was able to play his junior hockey in the WHL. Uh, like I said, parts of five years in the NHL, played 256 games, had 725 penalty minutes, so you can guess the kind of role that he played, and he was unbelievable at it Uh, and now he is living in the St. Louis area where he runs if you can believe it a salon and a beverage distribution company Uh, but this was an awesome conversation before we do get over to Losey let's bring on the talent of the podcast Jeff Levecchio Vex what is shaking today not a lot Toph because I'm tight and I have an eight pack so nothing shakes on me but (laughs) but I'm buzzing today man I absolutely love Lozy, and it's a really funny story uh he texted me like three days ago and he's like why don't you ever ask me to be on your podcast and I was like dude you want to come on well I'll set it up right now I texted you we set it up and here we are two days later recording with him read low and and there's so many good hockey people in the world we all know that everyone who listens to this podcast is a hockey person we know how good hockey people are reed low is definitely at the top of the good people in hockey i've only known reed about a year and a half now maybe two years um since i retired and play with him on the blues alumni and see him around the alumni gatherings and the blues year skate that we have here in st louis with a bunch of ex-pros ex-college guys ex-junior players and some other uh some other absolute beauties and and he's just one of the best people i know and it really came through in the, towards the end of the segment that we recorded with him talking about his role and how important it was for him to be the protector of the skill guys and of the Al McKinnises and, and of the Chris Prongers. And just like, he's just such a good guy with a massive, massive heart. Yeah. That, that shines very, very brightly in, in this conversation that we had with him. He seems like an unbelievably passionate guy about the game of hockey, about the role that he played in the game and, and also of, you know, his teammates and stuff. And it was, it was really like inspiring, I think, conversation, especially when he did talk about those things that you talked about. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, it, he's the same for me as like him and cam jansen are very similar and we're in it we're like we talk about on the podcast we're in a we're in a text group together called the bluesers and they're always chirping each other always and i always know that when i look at my phone i'm gonna have like 30 missed texts and it's all gonna be from that group (laughs) and i'm just gonna be crying the two of them chirping each other but you know he touched on it how you know the the enforcer role the guys who wind up playing that role whether it's forced on them or they want to do it they're just like unselfish guys who have massive hearts and care about the boys and and that's that's him to a t totally yeah and uh yeah, they it's it's a role that's not as much in the game anymore, if if at all. And uh, it was a great debate that we had about that role in the game today, and how some of us feel like it's sorely, sorely missed, and how some of us feel like you know maybe a little bit differently in terms of the fighting and and all that kind of stuff. So it was great to get somebody on here that's so passionate about it, and and had an unbelievable perspective about it too. Like some, I learned a ton from just hearing him talk, because um, we've talked to 
you know, we had Cam on the podcast and both of us individually at other times, I'm sure have spoken to, to guys that have had that role too. And, uh, it just, it shined through the, how important I think that role is in the game. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. And like, like everyone will hear on the podcast here in a few minutes, um, you know, with, with me and my concussion history and knowing guys who have concussions and talking to them and stuff like that, I, you know, I just, I don't know where I'm at with, with fighting. And I by no means was a fighter as anyone who played with me knows, but I would stick up for my teammates. If I ever had to, I was always going to be right there and I might not win the fight, but I'm going to go down swinging or, or either one by a lot or I lost by a lot. I never had any, I had one fight my whole career where it was like, I could, I would call it a draw. <laughs> Usually I lost way more than I won, but if I won, it was like, I knocked a guy out or if I lost, it was like, I got my nose broken. So, um, but you know, just, so I don't know where I'm at, but like hearing Losey articulate it the way that he did is really funny. Like you see Losey, he's like this, like six foot, 22 inch man that's 285 pounds with huge goggles skating around the ice and he's an absolute <laughs> killer didn't finish high school till he was 40 something which he just told us and the guy is so articulate he's yeah. very he's very intelligent he's successful um in hockey and in, in his life post hockey um it was really cool to to hear him articulate it the way that he did and it definitely you know made me start thinking more about about this whole situation we're in with fighting no fighting skill guys getting injured things like that yeah for a lot of people that are you know they're they're hockey nerds not necessarily hockey nerds but people that are passionate about hockey and love to hear about the ins and outs of building a team and team camaraderie and culture and all that this is going to be an unbelievable episode for you um and i know we talk quite a bit about that but he gives an unbelievable perspective on that stuff and, and how important he was to, you know, to his team. And he was, when he was with the blues, the blues won a lot of games. <laughs> he won a lot of games and he wasn't the only tough guy on that team. He had Kelly chase that he played with. Keith Kachuk wasn't a soft guy by any means. Jamal Mayers was playing on those teams, I think as well. Tony and twist, Tony twist. Like, um, it was a different game back then for sure. Um, so it was really cool to hear him kind of go down memory lane and, and talk about how, how he grew up in the game, especially coming from Moose Jaw, Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. And uh, we had a little bit of fun with that at the beginning as well. But uh, such a great guy. I had never met him until this uh, this podcast episode. So really, really cool to, to be able to meet him on here. And he seems like just like A plus, dude. Did he meet the expectations that I said? I feel like I set the bar pretty high when I was like, hey, my buddy wants to come on. <laughs> he did. No, absolutely. He did. He was unreal. Yeah. Yeah, he's a good dude. He's a good dude. I, you know what else was really cool that I think we talked about with him in the beginning, at least. You know, we talked about he scored a bunch of goals in, in tier two juniors and and couldn't make the jump to the WHL the first year. And I gave a talk to uh, Lindenwood's Division two ACHA team yesterday. Talked to them for about forty five minutes, and and one of the questions I had asked was like how do you feel about like roles in the game and how do you, how do you embrace, get guys to embrace their roles and, and, and do things like that. And, you know, I, I think a big part of it was he was able to score at the lower levels. He went to another level that was higher and he wasn't as much of a scorer there. So he did whatever he had to, to make it. And I think that's something that kids really need to listen to. Like, I see so many kids in my business, my training business that are going off to juniors for the first year. And, you know, they were the shit where they came from, excuse my language, but they were the first line, first power play scoring 30 goals a year, their whole life. 
well, you're a big fish in a small pond. And when you go play juniors in the USHL, the NA, the BC, wherever you're going, you're playing against older, more experienced, stronger, sometimes men, not boys. So you might have to start off on the fourth line or the third line or no power play or no penalty kill. And you just have to know what your role is on that team at that time at those upper levels. And you have to excel at it. Look in the mirror and be like, I'm going to be the best fourth line left winger possible. Well, I'm going to do what the coach asked me because then what happens? Then the coach trusts you and you get a little bit more rope. And then maybe somebody gets hurt or somebody's not playing well in the line above you. And because you excelled at, that, at what he gave you, he's going to move you up. He's going to give you more. If you go home and you pout and you're talking shit about the coach and you're telling people, why am I not on this line? I should be on the power play. Me, 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 me. First of all, you're a terrible teammate. Look in the mirror. Second of all, it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what the coach thinks. He's making the decisions from now on. It's his job to win games. That's all he cares about juniors and above. So just excel at your role, accept it, get better, and then you'll get more rope. Hey, if they're going to give more, are they going to be more? Oh, they will, baby. They <laughs> will. If you give more, if you want to be more, you definitely have to give more. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, well, hey, uh, I want to get over to this conversation, so I don't want us to talk too much that uh, anymore about it. But again, like all episodes, we want to thank everybody. Um, and we got quite a few people to thank, obviously. Uh, but before that, like I've gotten some unbelievable feedback on the Power Play Penalty Kill podcast that we had the other day. I've gotten more texts. Uh, calls, emails, DMs than probably any other episode we have. So we should probably do something like that again. So um, for all the people that sent us uh, messages and stuff, thank you. We appreciate it. And uh, we'll think about doing that again for sure on some other aspect of the game. Um, we want to thank Gel, Gel Sticks, our, our title sponsor for the podcast right now. So uh, they've been awesome to us and uh, they have an unbelievable product. Uh, if you do want to, they're the official training aid of the Hockey the Think of- Tank. They're the official training aid of the hockey think tank. It's something super cool about them. Also, a lot of hockey players play golf and what they just came out with is a gel sticks golf club. So anyone that, that, uh, is a big golfer and you're look or your dad's a golfer, you're looking for a Christmas present, gelsticks.com and you can get them a golf club, same weighted training aid as a stick and our hockey think or the think tank, uh, code will work for that as well. Yeah. Yeah. If you use the code think tank, you'll get a discount on the price and, and talking to those guys, people have been using that code. So we appreciate you guys for, for using that. It helps us. It obviously helps gel sticks and hopefully the sticks actually not hopefully I know the sticks will be helping you because uh, a lot of really good people say a lot of really good things about it and uh, a lot of a lot of really good teams a lot of high level teams are using them as well so thank you to gel sticks and then finally as always we want to thank all of you that are listening we really appreciate all of your support uh, all of your your feedback that we get and uh, again this thing just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and, and the reason that it is 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 because because of you guys and so we appreciate all of your help with that and we appreciate you tuning in and listening and we know that you're going to absolutely love this episode so without further ado here on the podcast is Reed Lowe we are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast one of St. Louis's most popular individuals Reed Lowe Reed how you doing today man I'm doing good Love it. Love it. Well, first thing I want to ask you is, uh, and we do this with, with all of our guests, we kind of take it back all the way to the beginning. And you grew up in a town that basically every American hockey player 
wishes they knew about. And that is Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. It's kind of like the typical Canadian town that like Americans are like, oh my God, what's Moose Jaw like? So you grew up there. So if you can talk to us a little bit about how you grew up and, and fell in love with the game up there. Um, well, first off, it's really cold. So that's all <laughs> anybody's doing. Uh, once I tell people down here all the time, once the snow comes, it doesn't leave. It just keeps packing higher and higher and higher. And before the end of the winter, the sidewalks are eight feet high, um, as they clear it with their, uh, snow machines and motor graders. But, you know, I think when you take a look at Moose Jaw and the hockey community and why it's such a big deal, obviously Slapshot comes to mind and, um, there was a uh, there was a guy from my hometown that was playing in the minor leagues at the time when that movie was on, and he was actually an, uh, an extra in the uh, uh, in the movie. And when they were interviewing him, uh, they asked where he was from, and he said Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. And they're like, all right, like uh, we're gonna have to use that in the movie. So obviously, famously, the guy's going out to shake his stuff at everybody, and everybody's gonna run with the exception of his wife and. Hey, I'm from Saskatchewan, and here we are. We're uh, we're hockey's we're hockey's town of Canada forever. After that movie, <laughs> Tof, you said you said Americans are always asking uh, what what's Moose Jaw like. I've never heard an American ever ask that. <laughs> really? Well, I feel like it's a typical like American like uh, the like for instance. So I play with a bunch of Canadians in college. And like people would like go up to some of the Canadian guys and be like, Hey, uh, you know, I know you're from Canada. Do you know, Greg? (laughs) Because like Canada is such a small country, you know, like they just have no idea. (laughs) He's from Toronto, like six, two mustache, kind of dark (laughs) hair. You know him? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And I get asked that question all the time. And and literally, you know, I lived, I played junior hockey in, in Minot, North Dakota. And the school that I went to, I had a contest with this one girl. I remember this vividly. I said, there's 10 Canadian provinces. I said, I want you to try and guess 10, how many of the 10 you can get. And I'll guess how many states in the United States that I know of. So I ended up getting like 38 or 39. She couldn't name two provinces. All she got was Saskatchewan. And that's because we were about two and a half hours away from it. <laughs> and I'm just like, how do you not have any idea what's going on to the like straight north? And there's just like, there's there's stuff up there. You guys got like cars and plumbing. And- <laughs> like, no, I, I dropped the dog wagon off at the border and jumped in a car and headed down here, folks. Come on. <laughs> Keep it up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I feel like, yeah, Moose Jaw is kind of like the typical, you know, dumb American that doesn't know anything about Canada. It's like, oh, what do you know about Canada? I was like, oh, I heard there was a town Moose Jaw or Flin Flon or something like that. Flin Flon. Flon, I I can honestly say I've been there and played hockey there. And uh, I just did a podcast the other day with some guys from Canada uh, with Cam Jansen and um, Strickland. No. Uh, um, just drawing a complete blank here anyways. Um, and they were, they were talking about Flynn Flon and, you know, Reggie Leach and uh, Bobby Clark and even Reed Simpson's from up there. One of my good buddies, I, my, my first year pro, we were, we were tough guys in the blues together. So there's some iconic towns in, in, in Canada, especially in Saskatchewan, uh, you know, elbow, eyebrow, Rose town, you know, Davidson, <laughs> Virginia, <laughs> the only place that smells like it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh, that's pretty good, man. That's pretty good. Well, uh, you got to play your, your junior hockey in the WHL there. And uh, that was a, an interesting time, to say the least, to, to play in the dub. Uh, tough as nails type league. Talk to us a little bit about not only what the dub was like, but you got the chance to play junior hockey at home, too. So that must have been a pretty cool experience as well. Yeah, I, I played my I played my 17 and 18 year old year in Minot, North Dakota. And then I tried out for the Moose Jaw Warriors uh, my 19 year old season and actually got cut before inter-squad game and I was kind of pissed off and actually almost quit hockey if it wasn't for my dad so I went back down to Minot North Dakota and played seven games there and lit it up had like 10 goals eight assists was third in the league in scoring my center iceman was first and there was this guy that was from Melfort that was above us and the Moose Shaw Warriors called me back and asked me if I would come and, and they're going to give me a 25 game tryout and um, I obviously didn't go back and uh, played the rest of the season there and then in my hometown living with my dad and then at the end of my 19 year old year I got drafted by the Blues so I'm sure glad my dad talked me into sticking with hockey and not quitting and being a real estate agent because it worked out pretty good um, so uh, it, it was unbelievable playing in my hometown I grew up watching Theron Fleury, Kelly Buckberger, Mike Keane, you know Ryan Smith, Curtis Brown like the guys that came through Moose Jaw and played with the Warriors um is a is a is quite a name full of guys and um there's just it, the rink was from 19 they built a new one but there's a rink and it, it's supported by um basically cords that are holding this roof on and it looks like a crushed can and so this rink is notorious uh, across the western hockey league for being freezing cold because it's underneath uh, like it's actually down inside like underneath the ground and you know it was just a good time and you know, obviously there's a lot of toughness in the Western Hockey League. You played against, you know, Dale Perrington, Rocky Thompson, Scott Parker, Zidane Ochara, um, you know, Kyle Fredrich. Those, that group of tough guys was uh, every night for me. I think I had 73 or 74 fights in 123 games, something like that. So um, it, was a, it was more than a fight every other night. <laughs> but um, it, was, uh, it was fun. It was, uh, I played for Al Tour, who's just an absolute gong show uh, just a great guy yelling at the other team. It was awesome. He always got you fired up, took care of me. Um, and I enjoyed playing in my hometown. It was a great way to graduate. I ended up breaking my tailbone, my 20 year old overage year and the blues and everybody decided it would just be best for me to kind of pick up and, and finish it off up in Moose Jaw. And I turned pro the next year. So, um, lucky to, lucky to be a part of that. Let me ask you this, Lozy. Obviously the game is, is quite a bit different now than it was when you were coming up. What you said you went down to Minot and you lit it up and had a bunch of points. Obviously, the type of player you were in professional, both the NHL and the lower levels, like you, you were a tough guy, you're a fighter. You said you lit it up. What type of player were you when you were younger? Because a big question and a big thing that I see with kids going to juniors and going on to college and stuff is they'll go to juniors, a first line player, and they're unreal. They're the most skilled guy on the team but they're a, a, what is it? A big fish in a small pond. Then they go to juniors thinking it's going to be, Oh, well, I played first line my whole life. I'm going to go play first line. And all of a sudden now they're the young guy. They're not as strong. They're not as experienced and they go to the fourth line. And some kids struggle with that a little bit. Um, so it sounds like you were lighting it up at the lower level and then kind of had a struggle to make it up to the dub. Like, how was that for you? 
Well, first off, um, my dad wouldn't let me play a traveling team until I was in Wee, So I just played in the house leagues and I was always one of the better players. Um, so my, and, and up there, like now it's AU, 6U, AU up there. It was called Adam and Novice. Novice and Adam is is the younger levels. So I just played in, a, in our town and we would go on hockey tournaments and stuff like that. But there was four or five teams made up of kids that didn't make either the double A team or the A team. And so I played that my first four years of hockey. And then when I, um, was allowed to kind of try out for teams after that. I was always cut from every team. Like I played basically tier one hockey three years of my life from the time I started playing hockey till the time I was 20 and heading to pro hockey. Um, the two years in major junior and one year in PBAA. And I played Batam, Batam A for two years. I played PBA for a year. I played uh, Midget A, which was kind of a double A team, but we had had uh, in Midget, we got triple A there. So I was always, I played two years at tier two junior. Um, so I was a tier two hockey player my whole life. And I was always a big guy that was kind of slow and struggled with my skating. But the kind of scouting report of me was I had decent hands for a big guy and I had a good shot and I could score if I got given an opportunity. Um, so as I kind of started my junior career, you know, um, ironically, I'm trying out in Minot. I'm 17. I'm a senior in high school. Well, my, my per grades, I was in the 10th grade, but my age, I was a senior. And, uh, <laughs> and, Surprises uh, no one. Struggled a little bit <laughs> in high school. Uh, so, um, I go down to Minot and I'm trying out and I'm just expecting to have a good camp. I'm listed by them. I'm going to go back and play AAA hockey as a, as a senior in my hometown with the Moose Jaw AAA Warriors. And I go down to training camp in Minot in the Saskatchewan Junior League, and I scored four goals in the inter-squad game, and I beat the crap out of the two toughest guys. And the coach was like, Jim Rock, who's now a scout for Toronto, was like, hey, uh, you think you could do that again? I'm like, score four goals in a game? <laughs> he said, no, beat the shit out of people. I'm like, <laughs> it means I'm going to make the team. You point them out, I'll take them out. I'd love to stick around. And so that's how I started my junior career, and I was – and back then you got kicked out of the game after every fight. So there was times I'd get in a fight in the first period and I'd go sit in the stands the rest of the game and hang out and watch the game with my dad. And my dad traveled to all of the Saskatchewan teams because we were an American based team in the SJHL. So all of the teams we played were Saskatchewan teams, Saskatchewan towns. Right. So I made that team that year. And then the next year I played a little better and I scored a little bit more. And then I really, really worked on getting in shape as a 19 year old. And, um, I just, I, I, I was probably good enough to play on the Warriors right off the bat, but for some reason the head scout had a hard on for me and set me down. And I, like I said, I didn't even want to play hockey anymore. I was just sick of getting cut my whole life and, and was told that I was going to get a good chance. And I went down and I played with a guy named Peter Holine and, and Rod Gorl. And we were, after seven games of the season, we spent the whole, whole first seven games on the road. Like I said, I think I had 10 goals and seven assists. I think Petey had two or three goals and like 15 assists. And Rod was, a, we were like second and third, second, third and fourth in the league in scoring. And we accumulated like 85% of the goals that our team had scored in the first seven games of the season. And so the Warriors called me back up and I didn't have my grade 12. So I knew that going down there and, and staying in, in the SJHL and trying to get a scholarship was kind of like not the way I was going to make it. Cause I was stupid enough not to get a high school education. And I'm, um, you know, I don't have a whole lot of regrets and that would be one of them, even though now I did graduate from high school at the age of 40, 2017 is my grad year. Woo! Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I was always a guy that could play the game when I was given an opportunity. And then in the Western League, you know, I scored a little bit my first year as a 19 year old. And then my my second year in the Western League as an overage 
I played on a line with Matt Higgins, who was a first over or first round 15th overall pick in the Montreal Canadiens. And I think I had 16 or 17 goals that year and, you know, 30 some odd fights. And so my role was always to, um, to be the fighter and to be the protector. But even my third year in the American hockey league, I had eight, uh, 12 goals, 18 assists and like 230 penalty minutes. So I, I, I played on the power play. I would get some penalty killing time. I really got, that was probably my favorite year of hockey. We had a great team. Um, you know, Stevie Plo, I know, uh, I think it was Steve Plo or Greg Gilbert was our coach. And I got a ton of ice time. Like I said, I had 30 points and, 215, 220 penalty minutes, 20 fights. So that was my next year of stepping into the St. Louis Blues where I was actually on their prospect list of a guy that was going to make that team that next year. So I always had the skill to play the game. A lot of times I probably didn't get the opportunity, but you know, I'll be the hindsight guy and say that I probably didn't work as if I would have worked as hard as I possibly could have and taken care of my body better, I probably would have got more of an opportunity to play. But that was something that I always struggled with was the beating that my body took and, and keeping myself in great shape all season long. That was probably my biggest weakness that I had as a player going through all my hockey years. I always struggled with my weight. You know, I could drive by McDonald's and put five pounds on and not even stop in for fries. You know, <laughs> and I just, if I looked at the golden arches, I was gaining weight. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Well, we've had a, quite a few people on the podcast that have talked about, it, and you even mentioned it a little bit earlier, how the one summer you dedicated yourself to, um, you know, making gains away from the ice and, and getting yourself in shape. And I feel like, I, I don't know. And Jeff, we talk about this all the time. So many people in the summer feel like, being on the ice and in the rink is what's going to lead to you becoming a better hockey player. When at the end of the day, like if you dedicate yourself off the ice, like you even said, like you made all those gains. So a little plug for Jeffrey Lavecchio and, and off ice training, but what, what would you say about that? For me, I think that, um, you know, off ice training is one thing, but truly learning the guys that for me, like you watch the NHL today and it was even starting to happen when I was kind of leaving the game at the age of 30 if you don't treat your body like a temple when you're 30 years old, you're not going to be able to stay. And there's anomalies out there like Chris Chelios or Lyle Odeline. You hear the stories of how they could party but and play as long as they did. Chelly played 26 years and was 46 when he retired. You're going to have those guys. But you look at Zidane Ochara and how hard he works and how he treats his body. And I just like for me, remember a guy like Al McInnes. You know, Al McInnes wasn't out hanging, drinking beers with us after. He might have one, and then he's back to the room. Like, he was 37, 38 years old, most in shape guy in training camp. And, you know, you don't understand that when you're 24, 25, 26, and your body can endure just about anything. But when you turn 30, that's when you have to realize if you want to have a, a continued NHL hockey career, the commitment level is higher than most guys are willing to commit to because it's extremely difficult to, you know, for lack of a better term, not really have any fun and eat you know, salad and grilled chicken and have, you know, nothing else other than that, you know, for me, but, you know, so I think that obviously training in the summertime is important, but, you know, I think for guys and for kids to understand today, if I could tell any of these kids that, you know, in the minor leagues or whatever, it's how you treat your body in season and the things you do to make sure that you maintain the hard work you put in the summertime. And that's the biggest challenge to do when you're blocking shots and you're sore and you're tired and you got in at two o'clock in the morning or you've been riding a bus for 19 days or whatever the circumstances are. And I've been through all of those things. Um, taking care of your body in seasons, for me, almost as as important, if not more important um, than what you do in the summer. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, Lozzie. I, I think that when you were leaving the game and even me just like two years ago, you know, every year it, it keeps getting better and smarter and more scientific. And I think back in the day when you were playing, trainers were having people just work out and now they're training. So like the, the way that you're able to do it in season now, I think is a lot easier. And I'm sure travel is easier on the guys and better and they're getting better food because they know all those things now. Whereas when you were playing, like you said, like you just got to eat salad and chicken. Like well, you don't have to do hockey used to stop at the damn A and W for our after game <laughs> trip and a matzo burger and a basket of fries. Like, yeah, yeah exactly. Like, these Western hockey league teams aren't doing that anymore. They're stopping and they're getting these guys a good meal. And they're there. There's an understanding level that, um, you know, your proteins and all the different things that you have to do for your body is important. And they, you know, they didn't care about a lot of stuff back when I was a kid in the, in the mid nineties in junior hockey. Um, you were just lucky to have a spot in the team. Right. Yeah. We had a nutritionist, a nutritionist on a few episodes ago and, you know, if you're eating the wrong foods, like inflammation is caused when you work out, when you get stressed out, when you play hockey and eating the correct foods can actually help reduce inflammation, which helps you reduce your soreness. It allows you to sleep better, allows you to recover better. And it's not like you said, you don't got to be a nerd and veg out and eat a salad and a chicken. No. You, you, you can make better choices, but like if, if anybody's out there listening to this one that hasn't listened to our, our podcast with the nutritionist definitely listen to that one because just a few simple choices every at every meal like one better choice is what I tell everyone and you're going to feel better you're going to play better you're going to recover better and and that's the name of the game try and find any way you can to get a little bit better if you truly want to push yourself to reach your your maximum capabilities I think there when you take a look at the body type and just the human anatomy and how different we all are in so many ways, when it comes to metabolism and the way that our body digests food, it's, I, I think that even kids are doing it more today. Like there's books out there now called eat right for your blood type. Right. And you're, you know, some guys break carbohydrates down different than other people break proteins down and, and each body needs a little bit of different fuel to make it happen. And so I think that these kids today are, are, and trainers like Jeff and the people that he's bringing on board for these kids to, to make sure that they're at the top of their game, they're, they're, they're dissecting this deeper than I think you ever have. And I think it's why you see kids that are more ready to play the game at a younger age, right? Kids are getting paid they're after their entry-level salary. That never happened forever back in the day. Guys would play 10 years, and then you'd kind of get rewarded your last four or five years for putting your time in. And, and as you see, that kind of – that trend, uh, trend has, has changed. And, you know, you look at the – probably the guys that really started were the Patrick Kane, Jonathan Taves that got, you know, six million, five, six-year deals uh, per year, um, you know, uh, after their entry level contract, then you saw Tarasenko get some of the same and Petrangelo and those guys. And you see it happening around the league where teams are wanting to pay guys for what they're going to do today, not what they have done in the past. And I think that kids understand that and kids are getting trainers like on ice personal trainers, which I've done a little bit of Jeff, Jeff does the off ice and the on ice. And these kids at, at a younger age are learning how to play hockey. Like I'm, I've trained kids that are eight years old, right? Their mom and dad, just want their kids to get on the ice as much as they possibly can and be trained with somebody that's been there and understands what it takes not only to get there, but some of the fundamentals on how to, you know, play the game correctly as far as tight turns and shooting and the different weight transfers and the edges and the games that the things that we do when we're on the ice training these kids. And that was never around when I was a kid, like 
we went to the outdoor rink. That was our training after I took my skates and my sticks and my gloves to school with me. And right after school, we'd walk to the outdoor rink and play till the lights turned off at nine. I'd go home, have something to eat, have a shower and go to bed. And it was groundhog's day the next day. Right. <laughs> went to school, played hockey, went to school, played hockey. That's all we did. We did, but we didn't have trainers and stuff like that. I didn't have a trainer until I was 19 years old. So what do you think is like the happy medium of that? Because I f- I feel like there's two different schools of thought almost like there's a school of thought that it's like, let kids play and they're going to get better by playing on the pond and exactly what you were talking about um, when you were up in Moose Jaw. But then you have the other side, you even talked about you're on the ice with kids at, at such a young age now and teaching them how to play. And I feel like the two camps, there's never a happy medium with the two camps. <laughs> it's either yeah. like no coaching, let them play, or these kids got to be in the ice 365 days a year. So if you had advice for parents, cause you mentioned both of them, what would, you know, what would you say? I think um, there's a kind of a, this is a twofold question for me. I think you got to take a look at the kids that are kind of growing up playing hockey, learning the game till they're, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. I think that as parents, we should be getting these kids in multiple sports and multiple activities, and they should be taking more of a break um, from, you know, on ice hockey training. If you want to work out in the, in the, in the, in the summertime, Hey, um, I think that's great. Like people work out year round. Why wouldn't you work out year round? Right? Like if you're a professional athlete, that's what you're going to do. But I, I encourage the kids to play baseball or, you know, get on a soccer league or go golfing or do something else to clear your mind and learn almost how to miss the game a little bit. And I think sometimes we get out of it and we take our little break, especially for me as a 10 year professional hockey player, uh, I would take my couple of weeks off and then I'm getting back into it because it's my job, right? Like I have to make sure that I'm in great shape. And I think that when you take a look at the kids that are in their later teens and playing junior and getting ready to go to college or, you know, turn pro or whatever they're doing, it's a little bit different because it's a business for them now. And, and so they're going to eat, sleep and drink it a little bit more. And they're going to target their workouts and the things that they do around that game because they actually have a, they have an avenue in their life where they're going to go. So I think it's normal for kids, the older they get, to focus 100% of their energies on that one sport that they're trying to chase. But under the age of 16, we got to encourage these kids to play a lot of different sports. I'm a huge golf guy. I love golf. It works great with the hockey season. It clears your mind a bit. You can go work out, then you can go play golf. And I really don't think, you know, even when I was pro, and maybe I did it wrong, I don't know, but I don't really think the kids should be on the ice. Like, if you're done in April or May, you shouldn't be going back on the ice until at least the end of July, early August, and then, and then start kind of getting yourself back into your game shape and, and your hockey skating shape. Cause there's a difference between skating shape and working out shape. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there definitely is. <laughs> well, that's, that's such an interesting thing that you said um, that I think like so many parents should hear to, and that's learn how to miss the game. I absolutely love that. Learn how to miss the game because it's so true. If you're doing it year round, like what's, what's getting you back to the rink and you have to take some time off to recharge that battery, especially when you're a younger kid. And, uh, I just, that, I'm going to, I'm going to keep that in my arsenal, learn how to miss the game. Yeah, you you can you have it. And I, I, again, I, the only reason I say it is because I lived it. And my dad was the, I had the best hockey dad ever. Seriously. Like, even my agent said, I wish that I could take your dad and replace him with all the other dads out there. My dad never <laughs> stood off to the side. He didn't talk to the coaches. He didn't do anything. He asked me to do three things. He said, son, you'll be successful in life with three, these three things. Number one, be a great teammate. 
Number two, be extremely coachable, even to those that are younger than you or in lesser position than you. And then number three, the easiest one of them all is just work your ass off as much as you can every day, all day, and, and give everything you have. And he said, all the other minutia that follows around the game and your work after life, after hockey life, whatever that is, that all is what it is. If you focus your energy on those three things that you have control over, you'd be doing just fine. And so when, when I look at that, I think that these kids, I, for me, I wanted to miss the game. I wanted to get into August and can't wait to get myself back on the ice and be excited about it. And, um, you know, I was still working out and I was still doing my stuff and, 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 and playing my golf and, and getting my opportunity to kind of miss the game and, and, and miss what it's like. And, and then when we got back, we were excited to be a part of it. And that's why I said, I, even when as a, as a pro, I didn't want to skate. I wanted to give myself two or three months where I, I wasn't skating month and a half, depending on how long the season went, you know, but that first part of August was time to, you know, let's get some ice and let's get boys back on the ice and let's start getting ourselves into game shape. Training camp's going to be in September. It's now it's time. And so, yeah, it's been, I think it was instrumental in my life and my hockey career to, to learn how to miss it. I love, I love what you said there too. And this is something that we've asked, you know, I think we've asked all the NHLers we've had on here and the D one guys. And I, I think we asked Marty St. Louis and we asked Cam, we asked a lot of guys and it's funny, the, the different uh, things we hear, but most of the time when we ask, what did your dad say to you in the car after games? Most of the guys are like, they, we didn't really talk too much about hockey. There are the outliers. Like, like I know I played with Pauly Stasny and we had him on here and you, you know, pistol. So, you know, that <laughs> I, and I, I played with Staz you know, for like 10 years and he Staz would walk out of the, the locker room and pistol would be all up in his grill immediately after the game, no matter what. Um, so that was one, one type, but, uh, they had a really good relationship. It wasn't him yelling at him. It was just him trying to help him like see the game the way that he saw it hall of famer. So how can you blame him? But, um, I mean, you touched on it. It sounds like your dad was kind of just like giving you more of life lessons than like, why didn't you shoot that puck there and talking yeah. about the things you did wrong in the game? Am, am I correct in that in the car rides after games? Yeah, hundred percent. And I wish I could, you know, I, I, I wish I was like that earlier in my kids' hockey life and I, and I wasn't, and I learned how to be that a little bit more to where, you know, did you have fun? Did you work hard? You know, like, did you do the things that you have control over? And so I've gotten better with that as I kind of grown in my parenting and I got 17 and, and 14 year old boys with some eight year old twins, but um, it, 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 it's absolutely huge and, uh, funny, uh, pistol, uh, poly story. We were over in Slovakia, uh, playing, we were over there for a week. We played three exhibition games against the Slovakian stars and, and pistol put the whole event on and we flew over there with the blues alumni and we were blues alumni were playing against them and we we're raising money for, uh, kids in Slovakia under the Pavel Dimitra fund to help these kids, uh, afford to play hockey. And, uh, Yan was there the whole week and uh, uh, Polly didn't get up there till the, the Friday. And there was a Friday and a Saturday night game. And we're in uh, Pavel Dimitris actually we're in his hometown the Friday night and pistol get like the way he set up the sponsorships was we had to have a tie. Right. And so we're in the, we're in the second intermission and he's screaming and yelling <laughs> and Polly's like, dad, sit the hell down, please shut up. And, and, and pistol turns around 
and walks back to a stall and he says, I used to have control of this family. <laughs> and Chaser, and Pauly had just signed his four-year $28 million deal with the Blues and, and Chaser pipes up, I got 28 million reasons why you're not the head of the family anymore, Pistol. <laughs> and everybody was dying laughing. It was so, it was such an awesome trip and, and to go over there and see that and be a part of the Stasny. And I, me and Yan really became good friends there and I became the honorary Stasny brother because they all need me to protect them. So we're good. That's unreal. And going back, that's a, what a great family. Uh, been trying to get Yanni on, on the podcast too, but we'll have to probably wait for the season to be over since he's a scout in the NHL too. Um, but you know, I love what your, your dad said to you three things that didn't have to do with hockey. My dad, he always, the only thing my dad ever said to me was work hard, patience, more hard work, everything else take care of itself. If you do those things, I'd get cut, work hard, patience, more hard work. I do well. That's great work hard patience more hard. it's all he all it's, it's all he said to me and it was just like all right well i just got to keep working harder yeah. so i'll work the guy next year you're gonna have success i don't care what you're doing right <clears throat> it's interesting hearing you talk like and and i'm a new parent now i have a two and a half year old and i have a three month old and and it it's i feel like it's easy for parents to kind of fall in the trap because it's almost like like what your kid does is a reflection of your parenting. You know what I mean? So like, even like if your daughter's having a meltdown or my daughter's having a meltdown, it's like, you look around, it's like, are people judging me? Like I'm a bad parent. Do you feel like that's a, and maybe the parents that are listening can empathize with that too, but I feel like that's a real thing though. And I feel like that's why maybe it's easy as a hockey parent to step over the line. Like you see your kid not doing something and you're like, you get on them so hard because it's almost like you, you're living through their life when it's really, it's them. Oh, I think, <clears throat> I think you'll, <clears throat> as you kind of grow into being a parent, as long as I have, you'll understand that um, we really don't have a whole lot of control over what our kids do. And, and a lot of it is um, <clears throat> there are different people when they're around us, comparatively speaking to when they're around others. And I think that when, you know, I notice that when I have people come back and tell me my kids are so well behaved and polite, but yet when they're at my house, they don't do a damn thing and I can't even get <laughs> in the room. Right. Um, but someone else comes up and was like, Oh my goodness, he made his bed and he cleaned this. And I'm like, Jesus criminy, what the hell can you do this at our house? Uh, so I think that when you take a look at the way that kids act and the way that they parent, there's a lot of us that they kind of adapt to. Right. Same with like the way that people act and, and, and mental illness and, and, you know, even racism, right? You can see a, a two-year-old white boy and a two-year-old uh, black kid standing there hugging each other, loving each other, because they don't understand how to hate each other yet, because that's something that's taught, right? And so I always try and make sure that I give my kids the lessons, and then hopefully they, you know, I've prepared them well enough to go out there and act the way that they need to act. But I think the bigger challenge with parents and how they can overreact sometimes, especially at the hockey rink, and we've seen and heard the horror stories that have been around forever, is they typically didn't um, understand, especially when the kids start playing at the higher level, and they almost start living vicariously through their kids. And their success of their kid is now my success as a parent, which couldn't be even further from the truth. That's the most ridiculous thing ever. But as a parent, you're like, well, if my kid's not, if my kid's the best, then I'm the best. Well, no, that's actually not true because you can't skate. And this has nothing to do with whether or not you're the best parent. This is about whether or not your kid has success on the ice. He's not a lottery ticket. You know, he's not, his 
success is not defined by you. And if, if parents could understand that um, a lot of times their kid has their own emotions and feelings and everything's going on in, inside of their head. And sometimes it's hard as a parent to try and differentiate between the empathy of where they're at compared to what you're feeling as a parent. That's the biggest challenge for these parents is how they try and live, especially these AAA leagues and stuff like that. Like I am not a fan of eight and nine and 10 year old kids, you know, traveling to Detroit and Dallas and everywhere else. I, I AAA hockey should not start. <laughs> it's an absolute embarrassment. Thank you. Kids learning how to love the game, yeah. not learning how to, you know, check their passport to see if it's valid. Oh, I mean, I was going to talk about something else you hit on, but I have to talk about this because this is, <laughs> I am so effing passionate about what you just said. Like for people to be, first of all, the kids at the AAA level, they're, they're usually buying the best equipment. So right there, the amount of money that you have to spend on equipment for a nine-year-old is, is insane. But it's where we are today. It's the world. Okay. So you're spending, I don't know, at least $1,500 a year on equipment with sticks, skates, probably more than that. But then to make these kids travel to Detroit or to Canada, like if you go to Canada once throughout the year, it's a cool trip for the whole families. Okay, totally get it. You're seeing a different country, very cool life experience. But to be traveling every weekend or every other weekend before you're 16 or 17, I think it's absolutely asinine. Like it is so stupid. Like you could be focusing on practicing more, having fun, working out, playing teams that are within your city. Like if there's got to be a way to get the best players to play against each other every single weekend or every other weekend. And the kids don't need to be playing games every single weekend. They're eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. They don't need this. You're going to burn them out. They're going to get they're going to lose the love for the game and then parents are going to get burned out because they're having to take off work and they're having to travel with the kids. And like, it's just a burnout for everyone. And I think it makes no sense whatsoever. And it's all money driven by people all putting on driven. tournaments and yada, 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 yada. Their status, right? The parent, yeah. Oh, my kid plays triple A. Oh, good for you. I didn't yeah. triple A ever. And I made the NHL. How do you like those apples? <laughs> <laughs> I love those apples. I love them. <laughs> Delicious granny Smith's. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I, and we're not going to change it and it is what it is and it's going to continue to go because you know too many people in this world try and be right not try and get it right and if we could get everybody to try and get it right and not be right we'd be in a hell of a lot better spot than we're at i don't know i i think that it's i think the more guys like yourself and tofer and myself that played at higher levels um and, and really care about the kids i think we're getting back in the game and we're starting to kind of push back a little like I know our buddy our mutual friend Lozy and I Lashoff Matt Lashoff who we also had on the podcast anyone who hasn't heard that one he had some unreal stories from Russia and a lot of good insight into hockey development for kids that was a really good episode um he's he's running a team here in Chesterfield where he's like we're not traveling we're not playing crazy games all the time like we're not gonna do it and I love that and I I'm pretty sure Jamal Mares is on that page too I think they might be coaching together or in the same organization and they're just they're trying to kind of yeah they're trying to go that way trying to be like hey parents we don't need to do this and just because you played in the NHL doesn't mean you know everything about hockey or everything about youth hockey and, and you know whatever but like to, people listen to those guys more. They listen to a guy like you more. They listen to a guy who coached D1 for six years, like Tolf more. Like we need to keep having those people come back and, and help youth hockey, push it towards the right direction where, you know, okay, your kid can still be really good at hockey and not travel every single weekend from the womb until he's 18. 
Yeah. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I got a story to tell, but I want, you said you were going to touch on something else. Did it, was there something else I said you wanted to touch on before I lost? Go your, ahead. We'd, uh, we'd rather listen to you talking. Yeah, I, don't want, so. I, I lost it. I don't remember. <laughs> just to, just to feed in on. And, and again, uh, a hypocrite isn't something I like to be. So I've made these mistakes <laughs> as a hockey parent myself. Right. So uh, I'm standing, this is probably my son's 17. I would say he's maybe 10, 11. He might've been 12 years old. This was five, six years ago. I'm at the, the shark tank in the South County there and I'm standing off the side of the glass with my dad. And cause I'd already kind of realized that I was not going to be able to coach my oldest son and that we were just going to be knocking heads. And so I stepped back and um, I, I, I wasn't coaching him at that point in time. And he did something and, and I'm standing with my dad and I'm like, God dang. And my dad's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I don't know what I got to do to get Connor to drive the net better. I just don't understand why he won't get it. He's like, huh? He's like, tell me ties his skates good. I go, what? You want me to tell you your solution for me getting him to drive the net better is to tell him to tie his skates better. He's like, yeah, because he needs you to shut the hell up. He doesn't need you to, he doesn't need you to tell him how to do anything. Let him go out there and do his thing. He's eight years old or he's eight, 10, 11 years old. He's like, first off, nobody's making the NHL next year. These kids aren't <laughs> going to make the NHL and, and until they're 18 to 25 years old. Probably none of the kids that are on this ice are going to make the NHL and only three kids to five kids in the entire world are going to play in the NHL at the age of 18 or 19. So just tell him he ties his skates good. I love that. Jesus, David. But how hard is that? How how hard is that as a, as a parent to like look in the mirror and go, you know what? I need to just step. Like it's pretty cool that you stepped back and didn't coach him. Like I love that you said that. I mean, I think that a lot of parents who wind up being the head coach are always the hardest on their kid, and sometimes too hard. And I saw that I saw that last year. Um, but you know, I just how how do you do that? You know, you just, I, again, I, I, I'm always trying to learn and I always, you know, my dad's been my greatest and best mentor. And I just took a step back and I was like, wow, yeah, I probably do need to shut the hell up. And that was like the beginning. And again, so the oldest always gets the, the worst, right? Cause you're learning how to be a parent and who, you know, your mistakes are going to happen more on number one, number two <laughs> is going to have a couple by the time you get to three and four, like I have, I'm like, this stuff's a breeze, not a problem. Right. And away we go. So, um, yeah, you just kind of adapt. You just kind of, you got to want it. There's a lot of people out there that don't want to recognize that they're making a mistake in what they're doing. And those are the people that spend their tires on a daily basis trying to get somewhere and they end up getting nowhere. But for me, I just had to step back and, and make it not my, not my deal, not my story, not, none of my business. I'm going to let him do his thing. And, and if he has a question and wants to talk to a guy that's played in the NHL, he can come ask me. And that was kind of how it is. And I tell him that they'd be like, how did you play? I'm like, how, after that, both my older boys, I'm like, how do you think you played? Like, well, you played in the NHL, you know. And I said, yeah, I got an opinion, but I said, I want to know how you feel. I mean, that's more important to me for us to talk about your emotions and your feelings about what you did. I'll critique you. I'll tell you what you did good and wrong and white, right. And whatever else. But how do you feel? That's I like awesome. that. 
that's really cool. That's such good advice for parents too. And uh, a lot of, for me as a new parent, I love it. <laughs> so, but uh, I, I do want to get to your career a little bit and transition because you had an awesome career, spent parts of five seasons in the NHL. And, and I really want to know what it was like playing in St. Louis for those teams. Cause you had them going pretty good. You played for coach Quenville, who I'm a Chicago guy, obviously brought three cups to, to Chicago. Um, you had some unbelievable, uh, character guys in that locker room like the Kachucks and the Prongers and the McGinnises and stuff so uh, if you can talk to us a little bit about your time playing uh, playing in St. Louis for for the Blues you know um, I'll never forget I was uh, I accepted my qualifying offer my fourth year pro um, I was they wouldn't be able to um, send me to the minors um, because I would have I would have had to go on waivers and I am anything's happened. I've cleared waivers before, but I was kind of in the at 24 years old and had kind of established myself as one of the tougher guys in the minor leagues and had done pretty good with some of the guys in the NHL when I had an exhibition season. And so um, the blues had just had a little bit of a tough time with Tyson Nash year before, because he was in the same position as me, played his overage year. And then uh, just kind of was in that situation where he was going to be unrestricted if he didn't unrestricted free agent, if he didn't play 80 games that season. So my fourth year, I was in the same role. So the blues knew that I was going to play on the team that year. I signed a one-year deal and they wanted to work out a long-term deal. So my agent ended up uh, getting me a three-year uh, one-way contract uh, before I'd ever played a game in the NHL. Nice. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Unreal. Who's your agent? My, yeah. Uh, Brad Devine, Thunder Creek, best agent ever. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and so the, the Blues didn't want to get in a situation where they're going to have to overpay for me like they did have to Tyson Nash. So they negotiated on the front end. And they're like, we've got to have two-way. We've got to have two-way as and earned it. They're like, well, we'll earn it this year, and then you'll have to give us more at the end of next year. And uh, so that was kind of a good way to start your NHL career. I, I was in training camp. I was sick to my stomach. I missed the day at camp just because I was so stressed out about the negotiations and everything. It was a real crazy time. But we got the deal done. And, you know, I knew I was going to be on the team for the next couple of years. And um, I was a healthy scratch the first four games of my first year in the NHL. We went on the on the West Coast swing, and, and I was a healthy scratch. And then we were like 1-3-1. One, one, we were 0-3-1, oh, I want to say, coming back to St. Louis. And Minnesota was our home opener. And I got to dress in it and come out to the fans going nuts. And uh, it was amazing being on that ice and, and going out there. And the fans – Gave a golf clap for me because they didn't really know who I was yet. But you kidding? Like, One way guy never played a game yet. <laughs> that's that's a legend right there. <laughs> it was unbelievable listening to that crowd go absolutely bananas when Al McInnes and and Pronger come on the ice. Like when Al McInnes came on the ice, I swear the thought the roof was going to blow off that place. And he's such he's my favorite teammate ever. Um, he was so good to me and still is to this day. Um, and I, I, I honestly, like I, my favorite, one of my favorite fights is against Scott Parker. My, the night I scored my first goal on Patrick Waugh and, uh, not a big deal. Ever oh, heard of him? Yeah. <laughs> it's his greatest blooper, so I can't get to <laughs> Have you seen that goal? I haven't. I'll have to look it up. Oh yeah. He starts messing with Al and I'm just like, you know, I was pretty much scared of Parks most of my career. He beat me up most of the times I fought him. But that night was a little different because nobody messed with Al. Like if you touched Al, I'm just going to kill you. Like, like he was untouchable. And that was just my mindset. It's still like, it would be a problem if I was at a bar or something or on the street and somebody picked on Al. Like, I don't think mentally I would be able to stop 
kicking the hell out of him. You know what I mean? Just like, because for so like, you didn't touch this guy. He was untouchable in my life, right? If anybody, even like, even when we would get off the buses, I would wait for the guys and I would walk when in Canada where we had all the, um, while well, we had all, all the, uh, the, the the crazy autograph seekers at two o'clock in the morning hanging out in the airport or in front of the Toronto hotel, you know, it was my job to wait for Al and the boys in the back to get off the bus. And I'd be like, no autographs tonight, guys, beat it. You know, like guys taking care of the guys, you know, and it was fun. Like that, I, that's why I love what I do and the role that I played because I was their protector and I had to, I played that role on and off the ice and, and to have guys love you for what you do for them in that scenario, man, it, it doesn't, it doesn't fill a heart any more than it filled it for me. Very cool. So I want to talk about that because obviously your role in today's game is, is not as existent, putting it lightly. And uh, you know, there's a lot of different, a lot of different uh, thoughts on that, but I, I go and I see star players getting hurt way more than they did back in the day. I see in the, just in the past two or three days alone, there's been four, I think four guys suspended for like elbows or high hits and stuff like that. Um, and you know, the, the, there's the two different ways of thinking about it is, you know, fighting is just barbaric and, and uh, it, it's guys are getting hurt and all that kind of stuff. And then the other side is like, well, no fighting actually makes the game safer. Um, well, where do you sit and, uh, you know, especially you play in that role. I think you have the best opinion of, of anybody. Well, first off, I, the one thing that I'll say about it is, um, you know, fighting um, really what changed the game was when they changed the instigator rule. Yeah. And there was no need to change the instigator rule because it's not like tough guys were going out there and taking liberties on other teams, best players. Um, that's the part that frustrated me the most was why they adjusted the, the rule. And I think that it was the NHL's purpose to try and get rid of fighting and show that they're going to get rid of fighting through a couple different avenues that didn't show that it was really them. So they would get the junior levels to stop the fighting. Like I said, I had 70 some odd fights in 120 Western hockey league games. Like that's impossible to do in the OHL now based on their suspension rules when it comes to fighting. So the NHL gets the junior ranks to change the way that they allow fighting to happen, which changes the way that the tough guys are going to get up to the NHL level. It also changes the accountability and the lack of respect that is we've saw over the years and years and years in the NHL because fighting was allowed. There was a way to deter somebody, you know, to not do something stupid. And we don't have that in our game today. And so that's probably my biggest thing is that, you know, Al McKinnis didn't get roughed up because of Tony Twist and Kelly Chase and Reed Lowe. And, you know, you can walk across all of them. Steve Eiserman didn't get hurt because of Joey Koser. And um, Wayne Gretzky didn't get hurt because of Dave Semenko and Marty McSorley and Ken McClellan and all the guys that he played all of those many years with. And um, there was a reason why we were there. Um, we signed on the dotted line for it. Um, we've seen some tragedy. I, I'm not sure hundred percent of it's all linked to being a tough guy. Concussions can happen in many ways. I got hit probably and not had my head knocked harder in hits than I had ever in somebody punching me in the face. So um, my biggest thing and the thing that hurts my heart the most is that I got to grow up and live a dream because of a certain role. And I chose that role. 
And there was lots of guys in junior hockey that were asked to choose this role and they didn't have the gusto. They didn't have the stones. They didn't have the heart, desire, the will, the whatever it takes attitude that I had. And so I was given an opportunity to live a lifelong dream based on a role that made the game better. And I'm the first to the charity event. I'm the last one to leave. And when I say I, I mean our, our, our fellowship of tough guys, our, our, our fraternity of tough guys, we're the first ones there. We've never turned down an, an autograph. We have an appreciation for our, love, for our ability to play in the NHL that I feel is greater than anybody else because I had to do it with something other than just the skill. I didn't have to worry about scoring goals. I had to go to sleep every night knowing that someone was going to kick my ass because I was going to play against them the next day and I had to stick up for my teammates. And that's a completely different stress than just worrying about whether or not you got to block a shot or score a goal tomorrow night. Those are completely different avenues. And I think that knowing that there's a kid out there in Shonovan, Saskatchewan, that might have had an opportunity to go play in the NHL and play the enforcer role that won't get that is a detriment to the game because we're going to lose personalities. We're going to lose uh, 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 typically the tough guys got fairly decent sized hearts and they care because they would have never give, been given the opportunity to play at that level if it wasn't for that role that they chose to take. And, you know, you got your Carcillos and you got all your guys out there that are trying to make excuses for everybody else. But I signed that contract. I did. Nobody made me. Nobody grabbed my hand and put it down there and scribbled a signature on it. And I would do it again tomorrow, knowing all of the consequences that have happened out there in the world and what could have happened to me. And maybe I have CT. I don't know. We'll find out here in the next 15 or 20 years or five years or two years. I don't know. I would still do it the same way that I did it. And I think that's the part for me that I think that the game's going to miss here in the next 10 or 15 years is those good guys. Um, that were there to protect their teammates and, and did it because they chose to, not because they had to. Man, that's such an interesting way to, to even look at it because, I mean, we've all played it at high levels and we understand that most of the guys that played your role, like if, if anybody met you guys outside of the rink, they'd be like, this guy's an enforcer? Because you guys are like the best guys ever, like typically glue guys in the locker room. You talk about the charity stuff. You talk about getting off the bus and making sure. I had, I had to be the glue guy. Yeah. I had to be because guess what? I didn't have anything else. I scored a goal the night before in Toronto, and I got a healthy scratch the next night in Detroit because they didn't have a tough guy. And I had one of my best games of the season. Okay, I had to eat that, and I had to show up in the morning knowing that I was going to be a healthy scratch. Big smile on my face. Why? Because I'm happy to be here and I'm going to play for the name in the front, not the back. Right. I'm the ultimate teammate. When you need something, you're going to come to me. When you're stressed, you're going to come to me. If something bothering you, you're going to come to me. And I accept that role. And so I, it, I didn't. Ha again, I had to be that guy, you know, where you got little French Canadian, which I shouldn't be. That, that's probably not nice to say. Or <laughs> uh, European, they miss a shift and they got tears in their eyes. I'm like, seriously, I got a goal last night and healthy scratch the next game. You asshole. Stop <laughs> yourself. Start doing something better for your for your team, please. So, I like how he, I like how he chirped a French Canadian, then he felt bad, but then he goes, or a European. <laughs> he didn't apologize for that. <laughs> oh man. Well, 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 Losey, like Jeff and I talk about this all the time on the podcast, like how important team camaraderie and team culture is. And and I never like you always knew that guys who played your role were blue guys and stuff like that. But I never like put two and two together in thinking about today's game, because I feel like in today's game, there's 
there's not as much camaraderie as there was when you played. And we've talked about how they're so, um, you know, the kids today coming up, they're very committed, but they're very committed like to themselves and their games. And sometimes that gets lost a little bit in the team camaraderie type stuff, but I never put two and two together in terms of like kind of your role guys and how important they can be in the locker room for that camaraderie and how that's missing from today's game too. So like, do you keep in touch with guys that are still involved, maybe coaching in today's game? And is that something that they talk about in terms of developing their culture and their team camaraderie at the highest? level too oh I, I i don't know i think it's a challenge i think just to feed off your comment on the camaraderie that the tough guys brought to the game and you know vex wasn't a tough guy although i, I bet she could probably swing him if he had to but it wasn't you know if we wanted you know his teammates and his coaches wanted him on his ice <clears throat> on the ice for his crazy legs not for his <laughs> for his punching power and, and his speed right and so he'd be able to tell you this as much because I, 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 st- I would feel the same thing about a guy like Bryce Salvat or, or, you know, somebody that I played with that wasn't known for their fighting and they would come to the rescue of their team. Right. Um, and, and my job and the job that the enforcer played was sometimes we had to protect our lead and sometimes we had to fight to change the lead. And that's where the coaches started to really get out of this is they didn't want to swing momentum both for their side and not their side. So guys would be like, oh, my coach said I couldn't fight, right, in the early 2000s where before it was like three-nothing game, you know, Kelly Chase, Joey Koser, or Twister Koser, you're on the ice. And if the Red Wings are up, Joey's protecting his lead. And if the Blues are and if the Blues are up, then one of those guys are protecting their lead, right? And that was the thought. Like that's what that's what I brought to the team. I knew that I was going to get to play some hockey, but I also knew that when we needed a momentum swing or if somebody needed to get tuned up, like that was my job, and I had to flip the switch. And I think that. When you are a guy on a bench, and Vex can speak to this because he probably watched lots of guys fight for their teams on the ice, you're just like, well, he's getting his job done tonight. I better step my game up a little bit. He put his face on the line. He put his head on the line. He put his knuckles on the line to get us going. It's time to get going, boys. Let's go, right? And, 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 I, and I feel that because I was on the bench when another guy would do it. And if I, they didn't have a guy that would fight me or whatever, somebody had to step into that role of Mel and be fighting a Hatcher or something like that where Hatcher's not going to fight me because he plays 25 minutes a game, but he'll fight Mel and be because that's a fair swap, right? Um, so there's that mentality and, and we don't have that in the game today. There's never fights like very seldom. And, and if they are, they're like guys just kind of slapping each other and then they wrestle to the ice. Hell the guys, when they have scrums, like big scrums where like after that done hit the other night, guys aren't even dropping their sticks, let alone their gloves and, and kind of just pairing up and not fighting, but just kind of, you know, having that moment, like, and, and you're going to see it. There's going to be a guy that's going to come into a scrum with his stick blade up, and he's going to jam it into somebody's eye or some crap like that, and someone's going to get hurt. I'm telling you, this is going to happen. And they have pushed this whole thing in the wrong way. And again, it, for me, it all comes back to, are you willing to sign the dotted line? And I think that they've misinterpreted what the enforcer role really meant, and I think there's going to come a time when they're going to miss it. This is, this, is, this is really, this is hard for me because for me as somebody who had 10 to 15 concussions and yes, I'm always like in the back. I mean, I'm, I'm healthy right now and I feel pretty good. It's always in the back of my mind, you know, how am I going to feel in five years? How am I going to feel in 10 years and 20 years? Like, am I going to have Alzheimer's? Like I do worry about that stuff, but at the same time, I a hundred percent totally understand what you're saying. Like I signed on the dotted line and I remember being like seven months into my concussion where I missed a year and a half and talking to my roommate. And I was like, still at the point where I didn't know if I was ever going to play again. I remember like crying at dinner and I was like, dude, 
if they told me right now I could play in the NHL tomorrow and I'd die the day after, I would do it. Like, and I meant it. I literally meant it. Like, I would die to play in the NHL. I worked my whole life to get there, and I was completely fine with if I could play one game, I would be happy dying. And I was like 23 years old. And, and you know, that, that's, that's such a powerful thing to think about. But at the same time, like, like you said, you signed on the dotted line, then you would do it today knowing what you know now. But I don't know if I think it's okay for kids and juniors to be fighting 70 times. And, and that's where I kind of have the problem. I think that if you're a pro and you're 21 and even then that's still young to be, to be making these life decisions, but it's life. We have to make decisions. I think fighting in the NHL probably should be allowed. Um, it, because like you said, for all the reasons the police is a game and stuff like that. But for me, having kids and juniors, I think maybe there needs to be a rule where it's like a, a three game suspension at first, but you're not, your career's not over if you fight, but if you do fight, there's going to be consequences. So when you do fight, it has to be for like a serious reason. Like your best player gets, gets ran from behind. So you're protecting him so that if you do turn pro and you are going to fight, you know what you're doing. But at the same time, like it's this, it's this duality where I'm like, ah, I just don't know if it's okay What's for kids to be doing that. So how did, how, how did you, you're, and, and we haven't ever had this conversation. So this is the first time I knew you had a, a severe concussion for like seven months or however long it lasted. How did that happen? Oh, so embarrassing. Don't even want to talk about it. But uh, as I was skating with Cam, I, I just got back from the American league after my, my like couple months after I turned pro, you know, they send you the American league. And then my first year pro would have started the next year. And I was skating for the first time in the summer. And there were a bunch of, you know, there's at Hardy's, there was those bumps on the ice. And I just remember all I remember that morning is like, Holy shit, there's a lot of bumps out here. Like I got to be careful. And the next thing I know it was 12 hours later, it was nine at night. And I was, what what happened to me what's going on and I, I hit one of them I guess going full speed into the boards almost broke my neck knocked out I missed 15 months so like it wasn't from any of that but I mean I fought a, a decent amount no like for a normal player not a fighter I was not a fighter by any means not even close but I did get in a, a decent amount of fights from juniors through pro um but yeah uh, you know and I, I got knocked out by pucks I got knocked out from an elbow um just random it's a dangerous sport and i guess and, and i guess the reason i'm asking you this is what's your fear of somebody getting in a fight in junior why why are you why are you so scared of that well i just think of like bugard like i i and I, this is no science behind it all but you know i, I watched a documentary i never talked to him i don't know him but like you listen to it and it's like he was a punching bag his first year in the whl is what i've been told from other fighters who played against him and fought him he was a massive human so they said you can stick around if you fight so then he fought but he just got murked every fight his first year i heard he lost every single fight but then he got good at it and then the next year he's good well it's like if he wouldn't have been told you have to fight to stay here, would he have wound up, you know, with CTE and stuff like that? You know, the bigger thing is the bigger, and where I'm trying to get you to understand is if he wouldn't have been asked to stay there, he wouldn't have even made junior hockey. I know, but is his life worth it? Now you're trading. Now we want it. Now you're you, and I'm not saying you, but I'm just going to take your comments of how you feel. And all these other people out there are now getting in the way of a kid making a choice on whether or not he wants to put himself on the line and play in a national hockey league. Why is that? How, why, why do people feel like that's their choice? It's well, not so your choice. Your, your choice was to not fight if you didn't want to. Thank goodness you've got great skating skills and I don't have those, but 
I'm having my choices taken away from me because of something that somebody else is scared for me in some way, shape or form. When you were in a fighter, you almost killed yourself and broke your neck and it had nothing to do with the fight, but it's okay to have really fast skaters on the ice. No, I, I a hundred percent agree. And that's why I have such a struggle with in my own head. Like, do I like it? Do I not like it? Do I think it should be allowed? But for me, it's a kid. So you're telling a kid he has to fight basically. Yeah, I mean, he, he's a no, kid. We're letting, we're letting 18 year olds go across to Iraq and shoot people and take a chance of dying. Yeah, I don't gonna, like that either. You know, you know what I mean? Like, we're, but this yeah. is our world we live in, right? And right. I'm not trying to compare what those guys do to what we do because it's not even on the same. Those are our two heroes. Yeah. Uh, but I guess I'm just trying to get the understanding out there that I think you can limit the idiots in hockey. But I think eliminating fighting and having these big suspension rules in junior eliminates the choice for a kid to try and decide what's making the NHL worth. Now I have people that are scared for me that have implemented rules that won't allow me to do it because they're scared for me. I don't need you to be scared for me. And, that, and that's just how I feel because I can't tell you guys how much it means to me to be able to sit here and say that I played in the NHL and a hundred percent of that is because I was given the opportunity to protect my teammates and it fills my heart and makes me feel like the human I am today and the success story that I am today. And we are taking that away from kids. That's how I look at it. We are taking it away from kids because we want to have some fear that fighting's the reason why people are concussed. There is way more concussions from body contact than there is from getting punched in the face. 100. I agree with that. Yeah, and, that's and you and totally. me, if you were to look at 100 fights in the Western Hockey League tomorrow and sit down and take the time, I bet you there might not even be 150 punches landed in those fights. There's a, there's a couple big ones, and they're swinging wildly, and half these kids don't even know how to fight, right? But then you get the, the Wade Belaks of the world that were a killer and got drafted 13th overall to the Quebec Nordique in 94 because he was an absolute destroyer at 17 years old. And now we see the tragedy that happened there. But nobody knows the real inside story on what was wrong with Beeler, right? I, I knew him. I grew up with him. I fought him. He was one of my friends. I had no idea he was in a, a place like that. Same with the boogeyman, right? But let's be real with what the problem is, okay? Because we're going to sit here and say that Boogie and the, him getting beat up, and I'm just taking your story, the problem with Derek Bugard was the fact that he was getting supplemented with drugs and mixing them with alcohol and to try and calm his nerves or whatever was wrong with them, instead of trying to find a way to medicate him, you know, the right way, which is marijuana. Right. And, and where we're going with marijuana, you're going to like, you're going to see the NHL get in on this. It's not an, uh, it's not an, a, a sport enhancing drug. Y'all. I, I know this for a fact. Okay. So it should not be on there. It's legal in, in Canada. It's going to be legal in the States. And, that should be playing professional hockey, playing in the NHL is one of the most stressful things there is to do out there. You carry a lot of, of mind games. You play, you carry a lot of, of, of the way you push yourself and where you want to be. And people are going to look for a release. Fact, 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 fact. Same with the high level jobs. They're going to have their cognacs at three o'clock in the afternoon and their huge offices. Like you see on all the soap operas, you know what I mean? But let's not take a kid's dream away from them because we're scared of it. Yeah. I mean, it's, I agree. That's, I, I just have like that struggle. Cause you know, I, I see guys. Scotty, like did that. I win this argument? 
Yes. <laughs> I'm, a, no, I'm, I'm, I'm on your side. I, I really am. I'm on your side. I think, yeah, let's hear your take, Tove. Well, so I was a quote-unquote skilled hockey player, right? And I've, I've told the story on the podcast before about Bobby Robbins. And Bobby Robbins, I knew when I played with him in Elmira that, like, I didn't get touched when he was on the ice. Legitimately, I did not get touched. And you can, you can ask Wayne Gretzky, the guys you mentioned before, those, you can ask Wayne Gretzky and Steve Eiserman, every single one of those guys, why they had success. And I guarantee you in their top two reasons will be because they were protected by somebody like you, you know? So you talk about more skill in the game. Well, there obviously is now, but also you had these unbelievably skilled guys before that were able to do even more because they were allowed to. There wasn't a, a fear of getting hurt from a flying elbow or, um, you know, a, a back, like, uh, what you call it, a check from behind and, and stuff like that. And, and I do, like, I feel it. And you put it into perspective better than anybody I've ever talked to before <clears throat> in, in what you said. I've never really heard anybody talk about it, but you appreciated the game of hockey more than probably anybody else because of the role that you had to play. And that is something we are severely missing from our game. Today. Ask, ask it's, anybody that played any level of high level hockey and both you did. What's the toughest role on the team? It's your role. It's, a fu- it's, a fu- it's the enforcer. It's the yeah. toughest role on the team. I'm telling you, I had so many sleepless nights knowing that I had to fight George Sorok tomorrow. Like, are you kidding me? I'm like, Oh my God, do I really have to do this? Can we hold on? I'm going to, and go, I, ahead. And I'm, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and I'll let you, I'll let you go because I, I made a list. So I legit went to, before this, went to your freaking hockeyfights.com or whatever it's called. <laughs> oh, you just made Lozy's day. Dude, Jax, <laughs> listen, listen to, listen to this roster. Okay. Oh, I know. These are the guys that you fought. I'll just list their last names. Shelly, Manson, Stock, Vandenbush, LaRock, Fedoric, Brazier. Berube, Downey, Dingman, May, Grimson, McCarty, Probert, Domi, Mikey Brown, who I played with growing up, actually. He's a talk to him yesterday. Yeah. Peter Worrell, Christoph Oliwa, Eric Goddard, Parker, who you talked about earlier. Like, yeah, that's, I I think I said, if I didn't say Probert, I meant to say Proby. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But like, yeah, I can understand like the sleepless nights. Holy crap. There's not many people who can do what you did. We're willing to do what you did. Could Cam do what you did? (laughs) (laughs) These two are always chirping each other, him and Cam, about who's tougher in this text group we're in, and I love it. I tell tell everybody all the time, Cam's really probably one of the toughest middleweights I've ever met. (laughs) He means that as a compliment and a dad. I would have killed you low. I'm like, well, let's just look at fight cards, and then we'll just end the story there. But there's there's something to be said, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a little soapbox just about our world today. There's something to be said to fear something. It's not a bad thing to fear. We've got all kinds of crap going around about you know verbal abuse in the NHL, and you know what's his name, uh, the little pissant got kicked by Crawford, and you know I, I <laughs> trust me, I don't want racial slurs and stuff like that. You can't have any of that, but you know. <clears throat> when you fear something, it will deter you from doing it. Okay. And I say this all the time. We can't stop a a pedophile from thinking the thoughts that they think, but we can sure scare him enough to not do, to not act on those hideous thoughts that he has in his head. 
Like you get caught doing this, you get strapped to the, the center uh, hall post and everybody gets to stone you. How's that sound? Let's see if you're going to act on your hideous thoughts. Now I can't, I can't control you from thinking what you want to think or, or maybe thinking you might do something, but I'll tell you what, I could scare the hell out of you and make you think twice. And that's no different than anything else with our kids in school, the shit that everybody's getting away with now. Um, you can't hurt people's feelings and blah, 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 blah. Give me a break, everybody. Let's toughen up a little bit. And it's no different. I'll take it right on the ice. If you know that there's no rule that's stopping Reed Lowe from kicking your ass, you might think twice. We don't have that anymore. Tom Wilson's not scared. None of those guys are scared. Now we've got these, again, French Canadians and Slovakians, (laughs) Europeans running around acting like they're tough with their visors tucked down over top of their nose. Come on. Like it's an absolute travesty. It's a joke. And everyone's running around with their sticks up and, and, and hitting guys cracking back. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't know. I just don't feel like, I think that there's, I think our society doesn't have enough fear in it. The right kind of fear. I, w- I would agree. And like I said, like, I don't know where I'm at with the, with the whole fighting thing. I think in the NHL, it still should be allowed. And in professional young kids, I still, I, I don't know, honestly, but a hundred percent, I played with Steve McIntyre and I've, I've told this story on the podcast before he's the toughest player that I ever played with or against. And when he was on the bench or on the ice, other teams were completely different. Like it, it, there, there was, there was, uh, there was no doubt every game that he played, it was a different game. And I remember he got, he fought, uh, uh, Kochi, Kosi, uh, yeah. you're playing uh Tampa's farm team, Norfolk and his tie down came off. So he got kicked out of the game in the first period and Kosi was running around like an absolute meatball the rest of the game where he wasn't before, before they fought. And as soon as Mac was in the locker room, it was a different game. So I a hundred percent do agree. And I don't want any fighters out there thinking I don't appreciate anything you guys ever did. Cause I a hundred percent do. It takes balls to fight once, let alone 50 or 70 times in a year, no matter if you're fighting the toughest guy in the world or somebody yeah. you think you're going to beat up, it takes hard and balls and it's not an easy job 100 percent. and i think that i i, I can agree I, and i will come off of my tough guy slant a little bit and say like it was probably not necessary for me to have 37 fights in 62 games in the western hockey league that might have been a little overzealous you know <laughs> <laughs> but i was hungry to prove myself you know what i mean i wanted a shot at everybody and i you know my rookie season in the nhl i was in like nine fights in my first nine games and 17 and 26 and i think like three and in 42 or some crazy number like that it's all on hockeyfights.com but it's just like this is what it was and i knew my role and i'm just like my coach jim rock when i made that team he tapped me on the shoulder and he's like next time you're on the ice you're going to get number two and i am telling you right now when you when it was actually i actually kind of feel like i was kind of lucky because if the coach tapped vex on the shoulder and said i need you to score in a power play this shift there's a chance he might not do it. If you send me out there to kick someone's ass, there is a hundred percent chance it's going to happen. <laughs> I can get myself out of a slump real easy. Just grab somebody, beat the piss out of them. That's awesome. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, wow. So what, I asked Twitter and Instagram a couple of questions, just said you were coming on. And um, one of the questions goes right into what we're talking about now from my boy, Nolan Rasmussen. And he, he asked, uh, What's the best, and you're great at chirping. You are one of the best chirpers in life and on the ice I've ever met. What's the best chirp you've ever given, and what's the best chirp you've ever gotten? Do you remember? you remember who it was at or who it was from? God. 
Dude, there's I, my memory is not good with this stuff. So I'll just grab a couple of decent ones. Uh, one of my favorite chirps uh, was uh, was to the fans in a visiting rink when they're like, you know, you're a shit bum low. You suck. Learn how to skate. I just look up to them and say, do I pay to watch you work at the quarry? <laughs> uh you know and then like um god i i got i get chirped hard all the time um you know i now i don't really have one of somebody said to me uh, other than that like i'm sure there was a real funny one about how terrible a skater or how terrible a hockey player i was out there but um i, I don't really know i can't think of one about me but that's typically you know, I, I, it's, it was so spontaneous for me. Like I, I forget them when they're gone. Like, I don't remember the chirps that I had. I know I had so some many of them. And I was always <laughs> running my mouth, but. <laughs> what about you, Vex? What's the best chirps you've gotten and given? Well, I, I feel like I told this one on the podcast before, but it was actually my coach and juniors. <laughs> I was standing on a, we we're doing a face-off drill. This is in practice, by the way. This is about coach chirping me. And he, uh. <laughs> He'd get fired today. Oh yeah, he, he honestly probably would be. And he's like, he blows the whistle and he stops practice. He's like, Lavecchio, put your hand on your ass. And I was like, huh? And he's like, put your hand on your ass. So I grab my butt. Oh, this is the middle of the ice. The whole team's lined up or on the bench right behind me. And he's like, now pull. And I was like, so I made this pulling motion in the air. And all the boys, I hear him snickering behind me. He's like, that's you pulling your head out of your ass because you've been a pretender all day today. <laughs> and the boys are just laughing behind me. And I was like, yeah, he got me. That was pretty good. That's so good. That's I awesome. actually, I had a, uh, I had a, uh, a kid. I was playing in, uh, in the USHL and we were playing in Des Moines and the, the benches were on the same side. So I was getting ready to go out the Ford's door on the one side uh, and they're, backup goalie was opening the door on the other side of the glass and he just kind of leans over casually to me he goes uh hey tof like yeah he's like my uh my eight-year-old uh my eight-year-old sister's got a birthday party coming up we need a circus midget you uh what's your rate, what's your rate? what do you rent for and i was like that's actually pretty good <laughs> i told him, i gave him some props because usually it's like oh midget or whatever and stuff like that but uh when it gets creative then then it's pretty good Hey, if you if you haven't seen uh, seen it, uh, go online and and look at the uh, Kevin Stevens chirping uh, uh, Brian Bellows. Oh my gosh! Oh yeah, that. it's absolutely hilarious. I mean, you've had to have seen it. It I is one of the best ever. It's him and Trache. Him and Trache actually. Yeah, just just ripping them. Like I don't know if you guys do a lot of swearing on your stuff, so we can't really talk about it if you don't. But it's absolutely you're, you're, you're the best, Bellows. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> have you that reminds me i talk just real quick talk about youtube things my last year playing pro two years two or two years ago in, in europe we just had this joke where have you guys seen on youtube the charlie huddy thing where it's like just like eight minutes of him falling down and like in the <laughs> no. nhl like literally anyone listen to this and, and charlie huddy played in the nhl and you look up his points it's absolutely unbelievable but this one youtube uh, collection of him just like falling or like stick handling and passing to no one. It's like the funniest YouTube <laughs> compilation ever. You have to watch it. It's absolutely hilarious. He had a great mustache too. Great. Hey, he's a great player. He had- 
he to played play, forever too. What he played yeah. 20 years. He played forever, but that's why it's even funnier. It's because like if you only watch this YouTube clip, you're like, how did this guy play in the NHL? But you know, mm-hmm. it's just it's, he was probably hung over back then. You know, who knows? I don't know, but it's it's a pretty yeah. funny compilation. <laughs> Love it. That's so good. Well, this has been an awesome conversation, guys. I, I would imagine we can go on forever doing this. But uh um Lozy, this obviously thank you so much for um coming on the podcast. And I think Vex, this is going to be, I don't know what you think, but this is going to be one of our biggest hits, I think. I mean, we went through so much stuff and got such a great perspective from you. Um, and uh, obviously the the listeners can't see this, but Jeff does have his uh, his shirt off as as usual. So I'm sure that doesn't surprise you. Actually, before we go, before we go, I, I hear you guys are line mates. You guys are line mates with the Blues alumni stuff. So Losey, what's it like playing on a line with Jeffrey Levicio? I just, uh, you know, I, I just get him the puck and go to the net. I know my role. <laughs> we had a sick, we had a sick goal. Not this, not, not this season, but last season we had a nasty goal. It was our first time playing together. It was uh, me, Losey and Cal Kramer, another retired pro in St. Louis. Um, didn't play in the NHL like myself, but a very, very good player. And we were filthy. I think we, we probably had the best plus minus. We had like four points each. We were the fourth line, not a big deal. <laughs> You know, and I just love playing hockey now because I don't have to worry about getting in fights anymore. It's toe drags at the blue line, boys. 280 barreling down the ice with goggles on and he's toe dragging, guys. (laughs) Unreal. Because they don't know what to think. (laughs) Well, actually, before we let you go, Lozy, I know you got some cool stuff going on in your life in St. Louis right now. Talk to us a little bit about the beverage company that you have and, and the salon that you own too. your jack of all trades there. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of funny and people make fun of me a little bit or they don't make fun of me. They give me a little bit of crap for, uh, I've owned a hair salon now for 16 years and, uh, we actually, I got a real nice building. It's an old character home built in uh, 1907 and we, we've got it, uh, uh, dialed up with, with a barber room in the one side. And then the lot, all the other kind of rooms are all kind of individual rooms, um, for hairstyle. And we got pedicures, estheticians, and then I'm actually just working on finishing the upstairs There's 950 square foot attic. So we'll have our wedding parties and I'll just have an event space to have bluesers parties and whatever else we want to do <laughs> up in there. It's a, it's a really cool spot. Um, the people that come in, they're always coming back just because the building's so cool. And, so that's been that's been a fun uh, a fun deal. And then uh, about two years ago, I opened up a liquor distributing company here in the state of Missouri with one of my buddies. And um, it's been a you know the only thing I know about alcohol is I like it. And uh, <laughs> but it's been fun. It's been fun to learn about it. Obviously, I'm I'm a big wine guy, so I have a little bit of knowledge on wine and and some of the some of that stuff. But the spirits has been a little bit more on the challenging side. I'm not a huge fan of like your scotches and bourbons and whiskeys, but I still got to like taste them and learn about it and stuff. So um, we've been growing nicely. Um, it's going to be cool. And it's going to be a nice little business here in three to five years and uh, hopefully find me some financial independence. So uh, one last thing before we go, Toph, uh, like I said, Lozy and I are in this chat group and, Losey's got some big hands, got some big paws, obviously on him. So, and now that I know that he just graduated high school, I didn't know he, he cannot spell via text. So since he's an (laughs) entrepreneur, I just wanted to know if it was his thumbs or his brain. So Losey, can you spell entrepreneur for us, please? (laughs) It's the thumbs, buddy. It's the thumbs. (laughs) No, it's the brain. Uh, We're going to have a spelling bee. We're at right now. We're in a chirp uh, about having a spelling bee. I want Luke. A venker uh, to challenge me to a spelling bee at one of our next bluesers parties because I think I could beat him. 
Um, but I just, I think I'm, I'm, I've got a test Monday morning. I took a test. I think there's a chance I might be dyslexic. So I'm going to figure that out. And if I am, then, uh, it's not uh, funny. I take everything back. (laughs) So I took a test and, and, uh, uh, one of our boys on our line, Nick, uh, dragon, um, his wife and a couple of his kids have dyslexia and it's there. It's a really misunderstood learning disability. Right. And so I'm excited to kind of learn about it. I've been doing some research on it and found out that, you know, I'm, I'm not such a terrible speller. I just can't see. <laughs> well, that makes sense. Actually. I have a bunch of friends that have that. And I train one of my guys who is a very, very good hockey player. I train has dyslexia and he has a really tough time in school till he found that out. So like, it, and you even, know. they're even having more tough times because a lot of times they're mistaking diagnosis of ADD and ADHD with dyslexia. And, um, I don't hope that I have it, but if I do, I hope to uh, maybe team up with Brent Sopel and, and do some good things for some kids and maybe build some awareness. Yeah, he's that's doing cool. some amazing things, that's for sure. Well, the other thing, too, about dyslexia is, you know, people talk about dyslexia almost negatively because it, it does make things harder for you to read and stuff like that. But there are so many people who are, like, running Fortune 500 CEO companies because maybe they – weren't the best readers or the best in school, but they had to figure out other ways to be successful. So yep. their personal relationships are better and they, they have to work harder and things like that. And there's studies that actually show that people with dyslexia go on to do amazing things because what they lack in that one area, they make up for in other things. And so you're, and you're probably a testament to it. I haven't it. had a whole lot of success and actually just talking to some people about it. It's they're a lot of times they're driven away from the school side of things and become real good salespeople or, you know, that kind of stuff and have to gravitate towards that, you know, the other skill sets that they have. So, like I said, um, it's, it is what it is. If you got it, you got it. You know what I mean? It's, uh, um, I'm, I'm interested in, I I took a, a preliminary test and actually before I got on with you guys here today, I just sent an email back scheduling my, um, 45 minute test. This guy calls me and Hey, I get 30 bucks too. (laughs) can you tell our listeners where you went to take that test is it online or you know what i don't i don't know exactly where it's at here let me see what this is i got the email right here maybe it'll help us out dramatic pause (laughs) dramatic pause i can't find oh here it is um doesn't was it a website or was it someone yeah, you called? I had somebody or? sent it to me. So it's, want, the, it, uh, it's the Pearson, P-E-A-R-S-O-N dot com is the, is the, is the site that I went to. And uh, I actually, uh, um, uh, Dragon was the one that sent me the link. And then I went on and did the, just a questionnaire and it took about five minutes and then they emailed me back and said that they want to go through a more in-depth test with me over the phone on Monday. So just plan it out. Well, good luck. And for anyone who's uh, who's thinking they might have that or somebody they know, send them Pearson.com. There you go. Cool, there you boys. Go. There you go. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on, even though I had to ask to come on, you know. <laughs> hey, did you I ask you the next day or the same day? What? I asked you the same day. As soon as I didn't know you wanted to come on, I don't like asking friends for favors. You know, I, that's, uh, I got 256 uh, NHL games and well over 550 games pro, not 1800 penalty minutes, and I can't even get on your podcast. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs>
It's all right. I'll make it up. I'll get you a hat trick next time we play Thank an you. alumni Thank game. You. There we go. As long as they get to keep the puck. There you go, baby. Thanks, man. All right. Good Thank stuff. You. Thanks, Lozzie. Take care.